Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Barbican Screen Talks. Hello and welcome to this, the latest in our series of Barbican Screen Talks. Every month we're bringing you interviews with some of the world's most influential filmmakers, handpicked from the Barbican's vast archives. In recent screen talks, we've heard from the likes of rock star turned movie composer Clint Mansell, dark and distinctive writer-director Carol Morley, and Trinidad-born artist and filmmaker Horace Ove. In this episode, we bring you a conversation with the man behind the two most financially successful British documentaries of all time. Hackley-born Asif Kapadia started out as the director of critically lauded art films, such as The Warrior and Far North, His career really went into overdrive in 2010 when he turned his hand to documentary filmmaking with Senna. Focusing on the life and death of Brazilian Formula One legend Ayrton Senna, Capadia's remarkable biopic managed to break entirely new ground. Not only was it a documentary that proved extremely lucrative at the box office, it was also a sports film that even the most sport-averse could enjoy. The film covers 10 years in Senna's career, from his debut in Brazil in 1984 to his death at the San Marino Grand Prix 10 years later. It consists almost entirely of archive footage and avoids standard documentary techniques in favour of a far more cinematic approach to storytelling. Capadia followed the film with the even more successful Amy, this time examining the tragically short life of powerhouse singer Amy Winehouse. But in the interview you're about to hear, Asif Kapadia is joined by producer James Gay Reese and writer and executive producer Manish Pandey to talk about Senna. Speaking to Patrick Hayes as part of the London International Documentary Festival in 2011, the trio discuss how they managed to wrangle weeks of incredible footage into just over 100 minutes. They reveal how they persuaded F1 magnate Bernie Eccleston to allow them access to his personal archives, and they debate the otherworldly charisma of Ayrton Senna himself. Some of the audience questions in this recording are difficult to hear, so I'll be back later on to help out with those. But for now, I'm Eleni Jones, and this is Barbican Screen Talks with the makers of Senna. Well, I'm joined on stage here by Asif Kapadia, the director, and Manish Pandey, who's the writer and also producer, and James Gay Reese, who's the other producer. So, um, I'm not going to speak for very long. I'm going to get straight to the point, more or less. 
I was reading a little piece about portraits and portrait films, which were featuring quite a few. And there's a line there which says, these portrait films or profile films often tell us as much about the director as about the subject. So we've seen the, the kind of global impact of Senna, but uh, we might as well go back and ask uh, Asif what uh, this tells us about him, really. I don't know. That's a weird question. Um, it tells me that I'm not a documentary director. <laughs> so that I'm a, I, I'm a drama director. And so a lot of the way the film was constructed was done in a way that I suppose I would do a drama, which was that I didn't start with talking heads. I didn't start, there was no kind of intention to have a voiceover or a, a narrator. The idea was quite early on as we were working together and with the editors to try and find a way to make the film where Ayrton was the narrator of his own life story. Um, so I suppose some of the kind of conventions of how a portrait film might be done, which would be you go and interview the people, we kind of did that last. We actually started with the material, and obviously there's one key person we couldn't interview, which is Senna. And so what we didn't want to do was make a film of everyone else's opinions of him. We wanted to make his, give his opinion, and, and that was a, a key part of it. I suppose also it says about me that I, I like cinema and I like sport. So it was kind of a coming together of two kind of passions. Uh, for the first time. Yeah, I don't know. You'd have to tell me what it says. Obviously, the film itself, or the life story, has a particularly dramatic arc. But if one chooses to take on the huge task of kind of representing an individual's life, there has to be some core value or motivation that, that, is, that is governing that choice because of all the subject matters that are out there, this is the one you chose. Okay, so this is interesting because conventionally, if I'm doing a drama, I'd be writing and I'd be directing and I'd be the person who would initiate the project. And in this case, this is a question really for those two because they, James had the initial idea to make the film and he can explain better than I can why. Maybe. And then we can kind of follow it through because it, it, I came onto it last. Well, the, the genesis of this is basically due to the fact that my father was the account director for John Player's special Cigarettes, which, as you can tell from this film, most of the cast look like cigarette packets. They all wander around looking like cigarette packets. It's kind of pretty crass in retrospect now to look at that footage. But um, he was the account director when they sponsored the Lotus team. So he would go to the Grand Prix after various events and do the kind of stills campaign. And he came back after one particular campaign saying there's this young Brazilian kid who was just so incredibly other. He's so intense. He's so otherworldly. I can't get it out of my head, basically. And sure enough, a lot of the Formula One population f quickly came to the same conclusion that he was very special, this guy. And it developed and it developed, and you know, he became sort of the rising star, as it were. And I kind of never really followed the sport, to be honest with you, that much. But what my father told me about this guy did stay with me. And it wasn't until much later, when I was living in Los Angeles, that I realized that you know, he, I was living in LA when he died, basically. And I remember my dad calling me up and saying, have you seen the news, you know, Senna's dead. And um, I was shocked, he was shocked, and it was one of those classic moments where he sort of said, you know, I just can't get my head around it, I can't believe he's died, I don't know what, you know, I can't believe he made, he made a mistake. And so he just sort of, he lodged in my mind as a very sort of special character from a very early stage. I have this kind of silly analogy that basically, I've always felt that you could be at any situation anywhere in London, you know, or any city for that matter, having dinner with a bunch of people and you know one of those people at that meal would always go my god I love Senna and for some reason this guy transcended sport he was so magnetic and charismatic you know in the way that icons tend to be and so the genesis of the movie really was to try and explain why this guy had such an impact on so many people above and beyond the fact that he was obviously a very brilliant racing driver he just had x-factor in abundance and um 
I was very fortunate very early on in the proceedings to meet my friend and colleague Manish here, who is an absolute F1 fanatic and Senna fanatic. And he put the vast majority of the meat on the bones of the subject for me, which ended up being the kind of roadmap to this movie. And at this point, I hand over to him. I think of the three of us, um, as James has said, I was really the, the Formula One fan and the Senna fan. And for me, as a teenager, he was that sort of perfect blend of genius, outsider, the, the guy who came from the third world country and taught Europeans how to do it, and taught Europeans how to do it better. And Formula One's a very, very English sport, and, and the mechanics, I always think they really represent football fans, if you like. And this was a, a sort of god amongst football fans. I think the thing that really got me about him was, um, it's a word actually that James didn't use today, but always used to use to describe him, which is there is something about him that was always otherworldly. I remember in 1985, Murray Walker describing Senna just at the beginning of the Formula One season. I saw him just looking at his Lotus in a way that drivers just don't. There was an intensity to it. And he said, if there's a young man who can become world champion in his first year driving a Grand Prix car, you're looking at him. And I think that absolute intensity, that absolute passion, and that just completely dogged spirit, he, he never, never gave up. And he always had, in a way, one answer to all of life's problems, and that was just to drive, and just to drive faster and drive better. And that's why I find the end of that film, I always find it very, very um, distressing, because you see him in the middle of the film with a, with a crumpled driver, and his response is to get into the car and go even faster. But right at the end of the film, when Ratzenberger is killed, it's the first time you see Senna in, in civilian clothes in a garage. And uh, I think there was great angst in his mind that night. And I, I think he, you know, he, he would always choose to drive and do his duty, but that's what I absolutely loved about him the most, that you know, his solutions to very, very complicated problems was, were just to do, were just to drive. I think there's another aspect of that, though, you're right, that there's that kind of impulse to, to overcome and, and, and you know, drive and go faster. But there is this issue of dealing with very real-world problems, too. He wasn't divorced from reality. He might have been this figure who, who seemed kind of otherworldly other and so on, but um, the work of the Foundation, in particular, is an example of how he was uh, thoroughly embedded in the, the real material world of, of Brazil. The thing about the Foundation was it was set up after his death. Mm. Interestingly, what he would do was he would get a charitable um, request. And uh, we actually met a very, very good childhood friend of his, somebody he absolutely trusted. And what he would do is he would get this guy to go and investigate to see whether this was real or not. And if it was real, he wouldn't just donate, but he would keep the donation going. I mean, you make a really, really good point there that this isn't some sort of slightly airy-fairy character either. Formula One is highly technical. I mean, they sit and pour over the data for hours and hours and hours, and he was the most technical of the lot. And if I had to guess his IQ, I was like, he probably had an IQ of 150. I mean, you are looking at a guy who was sort of an intellectual genius as well, no doubt about it. Many people here maybe are not followers of Formula One. I'm certainly not particularly, but actually I do remember when he was killed, and I do remember feeling quite shocked by it. And this film made me reflect upon precisely that. What was it that made me feel shocked about this particular event? I imagine many people here are, are kind of in the same boat and that their curiosity about this person is not fueled, excuse the kind of pun, by uh, an interest in Formula One. Before we open up to you, I just want to just deal with one last issue. Uh, where did um, you get the access to all this footage? Because some of it is obviously family stuff and a lot of it is, is kind of insider material and I wonder how that came your way. We were very fortunate that um, we managed to persuade Mr Eccleston to 
allow us entry into his archive. And we were the first people to ever get in there. Um, he's got this huge sort of aircraft hangar down in Biggin Hill with footage of every race since his tenure in Formula One. And uh, we spent a long time going through that. We spent a long time going through all the Brazilian archives, the TV stations, Australia, Japan, Italy, France, Spain, Germany, the UK broadcasters. I mean, you know, a mountain of archive. Our researcher is here today, the one and only Paul Bell, who did an unbelievable job of corralling the whole thing. <laughs> he had the worst job in the film, there's no doubt about it. You know. <laughs> we had it easy compared to him. And um, he put a load of filters in place, which uh, went through everything. These brilliant people. Florence de Bonaventura is here tonight as well, another one of our researchers, which is fantastic. And uh, a vast amount of material anyway. And then... Um, we collectively looked at it and tried to shape the narrative accordingly, always hoping that we would find little nuggets to you know, enhance the narrative along the way. I should really hand over to the director at this point in terms of how the, the script was fashioned from that material. It was an interesting process because um, certain agreements were in place, but you know, we didn't actually have the paperwork done or things like that. So there was a whole thing where we kind of, yes, we can go ahead and make the film, but actually we can't afford to pay anyone yet. So we were able to start the film. We had an edit suite in Soho, but we couldn't afford to hire an editor yet. Paul was on board, and Manish and I started off by putting together a, a short film, taken from footage off YouTube and taken off footage from Manish's shelf. We had some Formula One end-of-year tapes, and I think it was a, a 12-minute short film that we made, which is just for us to figure it out, but also to show other people how this film could work without talking head interviews. And that was really the beginning of it, because actually, like, 95% of that short is in the film. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. All of the kind of key beats, beginning, middle, and end, um, were there. Then we just started to get whatever would come through. Whatever, we'd all be sitting there looking on YouTube and following kind of leads into different parts of the world to say, what about this? And then we'd Ill illegally, I guess, download it, <laughs> load it onto the Avid, cut it together. And uh, the first cut we had was seven hours long. And then we had a five-hour cut, and then we had a three-hour cut. And right the way through, you know, there was this thing of uh, at some point we're going to need interviews, but we kept looking at the material, and it just worked. It was there. There's something about 
him and his stardom and how famous he was in Brazil before he got to Formula One. Globo were already following him everywhere he went. He then became very, very famous and loved in Japan at a time when there were lots of small portable cameras everywhere. His family were wealthy, so they had a home movie camera. The sport exists through television. So it was something about him and something about the sport that he became famous in. And also the particular point of time this is before Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, before PR. So people said what they thought on camera. And there was nobody saying, no, he didn't say that. You didn't hear that. You know, that's off the record. It was like everything was on the record. Just that he would be saying it in Sao Paulo in Portuguese and Prost would be saying it in France in French. And, and we were able to access all of this material and just have the two guys talking to each other. A key decision was we didn't want to make a film now where everyone looks back kind of and said, oh, he was great, he was the best, we loved each other, we were great fans. They weren't, you know, they're, they're, these are kind of sporting rivals at the absolute peak of their career who, you know, you do whatever you've got to do to win. And that's much more dramatic, that's much more powerful and, and emotional. And, you know, just to kind of sum up his life and his journey was that not only did he live pretty much all of his life on camera, but tragically his death was also on camera. So it was all there. We saw it quite early on. And our biggest challenge over whatever it was, two years, two and a half years of cutting, was how to make, you know, bring it down to 90 minutes, which is what our budget was originally. And eventually we squeezed it out 100 minutes. One other kind of key thing is when I did come onto the project, it was originally set up as a, as a slightly more conventional documentary in terms of the budgeted for 40 minutes of archive, 40 minutes of talking heads, and 10 minutes of miscellaneous. And of course, our entire cut was always archive, so we couldn't afford to do it. So the producers had to go back and try and work out a way to kind of pay for the film. We were, we were cutting a film that everyone liked, and people laughed in the right places, and people cried in the right places, but we just could not afford to make. <laughs> and we were projecting YouTube to, to Universal, you know, which, you know, the film before us and after us probably cost 100 million quid. And then we'd walk in there with a tape full of YouTube. <laughs> but it was believable. That was the key thing. It was all real. It was all true. What we were showing was real. And they're spending 10 million quid trying to make something look fast, when actually ours is much more believable, and it looks like it costs nothing. So. We just had that job of going back to someone like Bernie Ecclestone and saying, please, sir, can we have some more? And please, sir, can we have double? And please, sir, I know the contract said that everything over 40 minutes reaches this particular cost, but we don't have that money. What we've got is exactly what we've got for the first 40 again. And, and to be honest, I think Bernie wanted this film made because uh, that could have been an awful war, but you know, he said yes, and he said yes very quickly, didn't he? I think we got the yes within three days. And also just the point that Asif's making, that to make a feature film, you need coverage, and you need to see that coverage. You can't send them a shopping list of things that you need before you've seen them. You know, we had that conversation with his media rights lawyer and said, look, we need to go in. We need to see what you've got. And they said, well, all right, you can come in for two days. And we said, well, we need to come in for four weeks. And they said, but nobody's ever been in there before. And we said, but we really need to be in here for four weeks. And we had four weeks of access, three weeks of which Asif, myself, and two other people used. And then Paul went in for the remaining week and literally picked every single shot that you're seeing time-coded, with, with I don't know what kind of patience. So it was amazing. All right. Um, and so we'll start with that one hand up there. Um, never before have I looked forward to seeing the bonus. Question. This question is about whether extra archive material would be included on the DVD release of Senna. There are, actually, you know what actually is really good about the DVD and the Blu-ray is that we do actually do an, a kind of traditional version of the movie, which is about two and a half hours long. We'll be cutting the majority of the interviews, so you see the talking heads, as you don't obviously see it in this version. In terms of like the nuggets of Formula One footage that um, 
we couldn't get in the film. I and mean, there's some amazing stuff we couldn't put in the film for editorial reasons. We couldn't put it on the DVD. We may put it on a special edition at some point in the future, but uh, the two and a half hour Blu-ray DVD version is, is really worth seeing. It's really good. The hardest thing with this movie is, um, as I've highlighted, was the fact that we would have loved to have made like a five-hour movie. We could have easily have done that. You know, we could have made a three-hour movie about Imola. We could have made a three-hour movie about Brazil 91. I mean, it's such a wealth of material, but obviously convention dictates you have to try and get it into 90, 100 minutes. And, you know, and so the choices have to be made. But um, there is a lot of material out there to make a sequel with. <laughs> is anyone else with a question? or a, yeah, Right at the front here. Why was now the right time to make a film about Senna? And how did you decide it should be a documentary rather than a drama? Well, after, you know, obviously my father's sort of a vague relationship with him, I, um, on the 10th anniversary of his death in 2004, I was down in Devon, of all places, and the Times ran a retrospective for a week about Ed and Senna in the newspaper. And Simon Barnes is a great journalist and a friend of the project, wrote some really compelling articles about the otherness of Senna, you know, as in... He waited all day to interview this guy, and when he finally met the guy, you know, all these kind of gripes about waiting for so long were automatically dispelled by the sheer charisma he basically was, you know, witnessing. And so that kind of got my mind going as to, you know, maybe why, why has nobody made this movie before? So I did a bit of research, heard about the Banderas Project, amongst others, and then quickly realised after some initial conversations with the Senna Foundation that they had misgivings about a sort of a fictional narrative about his death because it would have to tick all the regular boxes, you know. It has to be the baddie, the love interest, you know, the kind of, you know, you have to box it up, basically. So the idea then quickly became to make a feature documentary. And I know Taylor Hackford vaguely, who um, made When We Were Kings, and that was the, the whole feature documentary thing was gaining traction at that point in time. And with these things, they take years. I mean, you know, we've been working on it for six or seven years. So there's no one moment in time when then suddenly it happens. You know, you spend years trying to convince people, whether they're Eric Fellner or working title Universal, to finally make the movie, or Bernie Eccleston. And eventually they say yes, and then the last year and a half or two years is the, is the mad scramble, you know. Now, James and I met on this in October 2004. And as he said, I mean, I think actually, weirdly, Eric, um, at Working Title, I mean, he was already sold on James's idea. I and mean, James said to Eric, I want to do a feature doc on Senna. And he said, that's fine. And I think my early contribution was that rather than doing something about the death of Ayrton Senna, we should do something about the life and death of Ayrton Senna, because that's how you get the context of the man, and you know, it was an idea way back in November 2004, and every year there was just another layer on this, and this finally came together exactly a year ago, didn't it? We, we did our final cut, I think it was May the 10th, exactly 2010, because we were in Cannes this time last year, showing the final cut to the family. Uh, how do Brazilian audience... Uh, how did Brazilian audiences uh, respond to seeing their idol on their screen? Idol on screen. It's a hard movie for um, Brazilians to watch um, because the country was in a very different state. And listen, I'm no expert on Brazil, but I've been there quite a lot recently. But as you can tell from the film, the country was clearly in a much different state at that point in time compared to the kind of you know, thriving economic and social place it is now. So when they watch the movie, I think they are reminded of a time which is much harsher. And they don't necessarily want to go back to that moment in time because they have so much to look forward to now. But I think, you know, he was a great hero for them. They're, they're glad that a decent movie has been made about their hero, but it is sad nonetheless. Okay, I can give time for one more question if there's anyone who has... Yes. I found what the, the, the best part of the film was actually watching Senna race in Monaco and just watching 
how close they were to the to size. And everyone goes on about it. I was quite interested in what your favourite parts. Obviously, you've gone through a lot of footage, but what your favourite parts were to the film, whether they be interviews or whatever. That's my favourite clip. Is that one you're talking about? I think it's amazing. I just fast he's going. Yeah, I, I kind of want to watch Formula One in a screen like this now. That'd be quite nice. I think Formula Bar One might start doing it. Actually, do. <laughs> if you watch it. Uh, my my favourite bit is actually Brazil when he wins in Brazil for the first time. That that moment when he finishes that race and can't lift up the trophy, and when his dad hugs him and he says, "Touch me gently," and then everyone else, "Don't touch me." And, and that's the bit that makes me cry. You know, that's the bit where, interesting enough, you know, technically that's some of the weakest footage in a film, okay? It, yeah, particularly when he's driving. Um, and what I like about it in, in many ways is also it's the one that... That sequence for me sums Ayrton Senna up, okay? We never really show another car. He's racing himself, you know? He's winning and he refuses to quit. I'm going to win this race. I'm going to win it for all of Brazil. I'm going to win it for Sao Paulo. And he won't give up. And then that is, again, kind of summed up by him lifting up the trophy on the podium and it's something to do with what he's doing the way the crowd are reacting the way the music works that i just love that sequence and that's the moment i also think about that i would never have been able to do that if i was making a drama because what are the chances when i okay i have a shot on my script of a man lifting a trophy i need forty thousand people there right <laughs> a helicopter and about 30 other cameras to cut that it's not going to happen you've got 15 minutes you've got 35 people just move them around a bit is normally what would happen on a drama and i just think that sequence is my favorite and and, and technically it's one of the weakest some of that driving footage but it's him kind of doing the impossible driving a Racing car in sixth gear. Um, so I, I really love that bit. Just on top it's of that. It's that theme, that theme that yeah. Antonio Pinto, the composer, you know, he did City of God, he did Central Station, his, he did Collateral, and Antonio contacted, his agent contacted James. He's, it's something about Senna, something about this film, where we've had people ringing us up from around the world saying, how can we help? We hear you making this film, how can we help? I want to do it, I want to do it. So Antonio was in Sao Paulo, we were editing in London, and we didn't actually get to meet so I said to him, look, I'm going to need to get, you know, get this worked out somehow. Can you write some music while I'm cutting? Because I'm, I'm, I'm cutting here in London, and I don't like temp scores. So he went away and wrote three themes, and that theme you hear at that point is something that he wrote before he saw any of the film. It's just from his heart. It's his memories of Senna, what Senna meant to him. And that's like the main theme that you hear at that point and also at the very ending of the film. Yeah. Antonio was a major kind of part of the film. Of course, we haven't mentioned the editors, Gregor Sol and um, Chris King, the sound guys as well. Because one thing we have to say, we couldn't recreate anything. We can't just go and get a Formula One car and go and drive it to pick up some sound. You know, those cars don't get driven. They definitely got driven like that. So every element we, we had to construct using whatever we could find that was the real material, the, from the sound to the pictures. to And just another thing to mention regarding the researchers and how the film's constructed is that very often, you know, we've got a shot that someone's found in Paris, cut with a shot that's come from Japan, cut with a shot that came from Globo in Brazil, to put them together to make it work like a match cut so it feels like it's all flowing from one camera um, was a, a big part of the technical aspect of what we're trying to achieve. Well, I'm afraid at this point we have to actually wrap up. I just want to say, first of all, thank you to Asif, Manish and James for being here, but also for all the other members of the production uh, team who were in the audience. And, of course, uh, to you for being here tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk with the filmmakers behind Senna. We'll be back next month with another exclusive conversation rescued and revived from the Barbican archives. In the meantime, you can subscribe to the series via iTunes or Acast 
or by visiting barbican.org.uk slash screentalksarchive. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.